Some time ago, a book was written on church life entitled The Frog in the Kettle. The book contained a powerful uh, parable that shows how easy it is to drift into trouble without even noticing it. The parable says that the way to boil a frog is not to put him in a pot of boiling water. If you drop him straight into a pot of boiling water, he'll jump straight out. So what you have to do is you have to, to boil a frog, is you have to put him in a pot of cold water. When you put him in a pot of cold water, he will be perfectly comfortable. He will swim around and he'll think that everything is okay. You can then put him on the stove and little by little, the water will get warmer. And at first, he won't even notice. In fact, as the water warms up, it will be quite pleasant. He will feel like he is in a frog jacuzzi. But little does he know that he's actually in real danger. Because by the time the water boils, it will be too late. His strength will be sapped, leaving him powerless to hop out. You know, that is exactly what it's like in our lives with sin. Is little by little, little by little, if we entertain sin, the heat is turned up, our strength is sapped, and we are in real danger. On Sunday morning, we've been studying through the book of Genesis in a series that I've entitled The Book of Beginnings. And as we've moved through the book of Genesis, we've moved past the fall, which was recorded in Genesis chapter 3, which talks about how God rebelled, how man rebelled against God. And we've come through Genesis chapter 5. And as we've observed it, it's been sort of like humanity has been in a proverbial, it's been like that man is in a proverbial frog in a kettle. They've been on this downward spiral. And we are going to see today where that spiral leads as we come to Genesis chapter 6. Last week in Genesis chapter 5, we saw the line of Seth, uh, the line of Adam that came through Seth. And we saw 10 generations of people who called on the name of the Lord. And it ended in verse 32 with Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now we come to Genesis chapter 6, and we see that Moses expands the story about Noah, and he introduces the story of the flood. And for many of us, the story of the flood may seem like a children's story, but actually I think we need to pay attention to this story, because Jesus said that the days prior to his return will be just like the days prior to the coming of the great flood. In Matthew 24, verse 37, Jesus said this, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, the people were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day, notice that, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of man, of the Son of Man, be. So Jesus is saying that the people of Noah's time, they ignored the warnings. They just went off as if life was just all the same. And it was too late in the end. It was like they were a frog in the kettle. And Jesus says the same thing will happen to many in the days prior to his return. So our passage teaches us about the downward spiral of sin. It teaches us that sin begins with compromise. Compromise leads to corruption, and corruption ends in condemnation. And so the message is for us today. This is the message. Make sure you listen to God's warning. 
Don't ignore the symptoms because it may be too late in the end. You see, you might be on a downward spiral this morning and you may not even be aware of it that your strength is being sapped and it may be too late. So the first step in the downward spiral is that we see that sin begins with compromise. Look down in your Bibles in verse 1. We read this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now this verse causes a little bit of problems for interpreters. I mean, who were these sons of God and who were the daughters of men And what does the author mean when he says that they intermarried? Well, there are two main views that interpreters have adopted when it comes to this passage. The first view, and probably the most um, prominent view, is the idea that the sons of God here refer to fallen angels who came in human bodies and married the daughters of men, resulting in a superhuman race called the Nephilim. Now, many respected Bible scholars actually hold to this view. People like Donald Barnhouse and Charles Ryrie, just to name a few. And this this view was actually an ancient view, and it was found right back in the early church and was held by early church fathers like Justin Martyr and Tertullian. Now, the strongest um, argument for this view is that every time the sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to angels. And it is interesting that there are several New Testament passages that refer to the flood And they mentioned that demons at this time abandoned their proper abode and incurred judgment. This is mentioned in 1 Peter 3, 19, 2 Peter 2, 4, and Jude 6. And so it's argued that these demons left their proper abode of the spirit world and came down and married the daughters of men. Now, it is argued that Satan did this for a reason, because he wanted to stop God's plan of sending a deliverer. He wanted to stop God's plan of sending the Messiah, Jesus. And he tried to do this by creating this superhuman race that was half angel and half human, thereby making the promise of God ineffective. Now, in spite of these arguments, this is actually not my view. I think that this view has a number of problems. First, there is the theological problem of how angels can have sex with humans. I mean, Jesus said that angels are neither given in marriage, nor do they marry. And what type of being would they be anyway? Would they, what type of being would this hybrid being be? Would it have a soul? Further, it makes the Bible sound a lot like Greek mythology. In the tales of Greek mythology, you will find, you will read about these gods coming down and, and, and mating with humans, and they produce these demigods like Hercules and others. And while the term sons of God does refer to angels in the Old Testament, in all of the passages that they're referenced, when you look them up, you'll see that they refer to righteous angels, not to fallen ones, not to demons. And so the sons of God seems to be a strange term to employ when speaking of demons. And while this exact term, the sons of God, is not used of people in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God's people are called his children. So why introduce a mythological-sounding concept full of theological problems when when there is no need, when, when there is an easier way to read the text? And that leads me to the second view and my view, which, of course, is the correct view in my eyes. I think in light of Genesis chapter 6, the most natural way to interpret the phrase, the sons of God, 
is to see this phrase as referring to the godly descendants of Seth that we read about in Genesis 5, who called on the name of the Lord. And therefore, the most natural way to interpret the phrase, the daughters of men, is to see that these were the women who came from the line of Cain, who rejected God. So if you see it this way, then the problem that Moses is describing in verses 1 and 2 which led to the corruption of the human race and the judgment of the flood was the intermarriage between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. Now, undoubtedly, Satan was behind the scenes, as he always is, trying to draw people away from God. But to say that this passage refers to fallen angels who married human women, I think is going a bit too far. Now, you might disagree with me, and that's okay. No matter what interpretation you arrive at, I think the application is still the same. Sin begins with compromise. The Sethites, the sons of God, should have known better than just to marry because of sexual attraction. They should have known that it is profitable to marry someone with the same faith and character. But they didn't, and the result was compromise. You see, sin always begins with compromise. You know, one of the questions I'm often asked, particularly by younger people, is, is it wrong for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? And I think from passages such as this one and others, that the answer is yes. As the prophet Amos said, how can two people walk together unless you've agreed on the destination? It's impossible to be in unity with someone unless you have the same values and the same core allegiances. In other words, unless you're going in the same direction. And for the Christian, their primary allegiance is to Jesus. He is their Lord and Master. So if a Christian marries a non-Christian, it's going to be really hard for them. And eventually down the track, they're going to be tempted to compromise on things like how they spend their money, how they spend their time, how they raise their children. And this is why the Bible advises against it. Now, if you married a non-believer... Don't feel ashamed or or judged. I'm I'm not trying to beat you up here this morning. There is grace and, and God would want you to stay in that marriage and win them without a word. But I what I'm saying is that I believe from this passage that to marry someone who doesn't possess the same faith and is not a person of character is wrong. I've seen so many people have heartache and pain because they've fallen into this pathway of compromise. You know, um, just to marry on the basis of sexual attraction alone is, is, is pretty poor judgment. You know, it is important to be sexually attracted to the person with whom you marry. There's nothing wrong with that. But to marry primarily just because someone is sexually attractive is a serious mistake. Now, while the area of wrongful marriage was where these people had compromised, And it is an area where we all can compromise. It's not the full extent of the application. You see, these men were from the line of Seth. They were called the sons of God. And they married these women on the basis of sexual attraction. They compromised their integrity. You see, they had a name to live up to, sons of God. But their lives didn't match their title and they compromised their integrity. You know, if you are a follower of Christ, then you have a name to live up to. You are a child of God. 
So guard your integrity from compromise. Now, integrity does not mean perfection. Nobody's perfect. But integrity means that when you make a mistake, you deal with it. It means that when you do sin, you are honest about your sin. You confess it to God and you confess it to the other people you've harmed. You see, Satan is seeking to get you to compromise your integrity, to walk away from God. He wants you to compromise your beliefs and values. Now, have you ever thought about how temptation works? You know, temptation typically works like this. <laughs> You're sitting at home late at night and you start to get hungry. And you've had dinner and you know that you shouldn't snack, but this thought enters your mind. I will look, but not touch. And so you get up off the couch and you go to the cupboard and you open the cupboard and you have a look in. And then you think, I will touch but not taste. And so you pick up the jet box and you put your hand inside. And then the thought comes into your mind, I will taste, but I will only have a few. And before you know it, you find yourself sitting on the couch, crumbs all over your shirt, and a box of empty jets. Now, where did the problem start? The problem started with the first compromise. I will look but not touch. You see, sin begins with compromise. So guard your integrity. Guard your integrity from compromise. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that if you have sinned, you confess it to God. You confess it to others. You continue to walk with him. So sin always begins with compromise, but the next step in the spiral downward is that compromise leads to corruption. Look down in your Bibles in verse four. We read this. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So this verse mentions the Nephilim. So who were these strange Nephilim? Well, as I said earlier, the people who interpret verses one and two as referring to angels they say that the Nephilim was this race of giants who came from the union of angels and men. But the text doesn't say that. In fact, it explicitly says that the Nephilim existed after the fall. You know, it's interesting that the only other place where the word Nephilim is used in the Old Testament appears in Numbers 13, 33. When the spies returned from spying out the promised land, they came back and they said, we have seen that the Nephilim are in the, in the land and we seem like grasshoppers in comparison to them. You see, the word Nephilim comes from a root word in Hebrew, which means to fall upon. So I think that the word used here describes men of violence who liked, who liked to fall upon their enemies. You see, the point is this that they were vicious men who would sooner kill you than look at you. I think this is confirmed by verse 11. Look in verse 11, we read this. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. So Moses' point is that that generation prior to the flood was notorious for its violence and corruption. You see, compromise leads to corruption. Unchecked sin will spread like cancer. Unchecked sin will harden your heart and it will soon lead to acts of violence in your hands. 
You know, if you allow sin to go unchecked and unconfessed in your life, it will spread like cancer. You will find yourselves doing things, saying things, going places that you never thought you would go. You know, when you go to the beach, I don't know if you've had this experience, and you go into the water, and you're in the water, and then and you're just having fun, and you're not even watching, and then you look up at that moment, and you see that you've drifted down the beach, that your towel is way back up there in the place that you entered, and you realize that you've drifted down the beach because you haven't been even observing that the current has been dragging you away. And that's what can happen with sin. It will drag you away from God and drag you away from his, his uh, ways. You know, this is further confirmed by God's evaluation of that generation. Look down in verse 5. We read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, this is interesting. This is the second time in Genesis where we see this phrase, and God saw. The very first time was found in Genesis chapter 1 on day 6 when God saw that all that he had made was very Good. And here, God looks down, and what does he see a second time? He looks down and he sees that every thought of man's heart is only evil continually. You see, sin begins with compromise, and it leads to corruption. But corruption is not just about what you do out there. Corruption is what's happening in here. And, you know, Jesus said it is out of the heart that the issues of life spring. Jesus said in Mark 7, verse 21, Out of the heart of men come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And even though you mightn't be as bad as these people were in Noah's day, you, like me, have a heart that's filled with corruption. In fact, from our very birth, we are born with a seed of corruption in our hearts. It's interesting that Noah was born with a corrupt heart. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, after the flood, God said this. He said, never again will I curse the ground. And he says this, because the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And who was he speaking about? Only Noah and his sons. From the very beginning of our days, we have this seed of corruption in our heart. And left unchecked, it will go into all type of evil in our hands. And so make no mistake, there is no hiding from God here this morning. God sees everything. God sees everything that's happening. Because he looks into people's hearts and he sees the deceitful deals made behind closed doors. He sees the whispers that we utter behind people's backs. He sees the hidden agendas that we have when we politically posture ourselves towards others. He sees the times that we spin the truth in order to make ourselves look better. He sees our preoccupation with pleasure. He sees all the lies, all the lusts, all the pride. He sees it all. You see, sin begins with compromise and it leads to corruption. And in the end, in the end, it leads to condemnation. Look down in verse 6 in your Bibles. We read this. And Lord, and the Lord, this is such a sad statement. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him. Look at what it says in your Bible. It grieved him to what? 
to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, animals and man and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made them. You know, the words sorry and grieved, these are telling us something about the heart of God. These are emotional words. You aren't grieved about something unless you love someone. As Anne Graham Lotz writes in her book, God's Story, she writes this, the God who created the heavens and the earth as an environment for man, the God who brought Adam into existence because he wanted to be known by him, the God who personally planted a garden in Eden as his home for man, the God who tenderly gave Adam the desire of his heart when he created the woman to be his true companion, the God who supplied all of Adam's needs over and above all that he could have thought or imagined. This God was the one whom the descendants of Adam ignored and neglected, and it filled God's heart filled with pain. You see, I want you to get this point. God doesn't get a sadistic kick out of judgment. It grieves him when he sees our rebellion and sin, and he only brings judgment on unbelievers or discipline on believers after he has repeatedly warned and appealed to them to turn to him. You see, it's interesting. Look down in verse 3 in your Bibles. It's interesting that the Lord says this. We left out this verse. He says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Now, some people interpret that that reference there as over in Genesis chapter 5, we saw that people live for these long ages, and God was now limiting the age of people's lives to 120 years. But I don't think that's what this is a reference to. This is a reference to the flood. God was saying, I've had enough. I'm giving man 120 years, and then I'm going to bring judgment. But I think this, the reason that he gave that generation 120 years before he sent the flood is because he is a patient God. He's not willing. That means he doesn't want anyone to perish but all to come to eternal life. I believe that just like with the nation of Nineveh, who didn't know their right hand from their left hand, which means they had no moral compass whatsoever, when they repented, God relented. And I believe that for this generation, if they had have heeded God's warnings, God would have repented and he would have forgiven them. You see, Ezekiel 33, 11 says, the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God desires that all should come to him. But, 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 listen up today. This should be a warning that God does reach a point, as he says in verse 3, where my spirit will no longer continue to strive with men. It does reach a point where he says enough is enough and he will judge. For the final generation living at the time of the the fall, the flood, it was 120 years and then he was going to judge. And for all of us in this room, living post-Christ, post-Calvary, the Apostle Paul says this in Acts 17 verse 31. Look at it up on the screen. It says that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is proof that there is a day appointed for coming judgment. God has appointed a day, we don't know when it is, where Jesus will return 
and judgment will occur for every single person. So sin begins with compromise. Compromise leads to corruption, and corruption ends in condemnation. And if this was the end of the story, then this would be a pretty dark and bleak picture. If this was the last thing to say, then this is a pretty dark picture. But I love this little word that occurs in the Bible. You know what the word is? But. But. What a great word. On this dark landscape, there is this one word. Look in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, while sin begins with compromise and compromise leads to corruption and corruption ends in condemnation, you can experience grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor means acceptance or grace. It's not that Noah earned that. Do you notice it says he found it? It was given to him. He didn't deserve it. He was just as corrupt as any other person living in that generation. But he was willing to accept God's judgment of his sin and turn to God for provision of grace. And when he humbled himself and turned to God, he found favor in the eyes of God. You know, this is the very first time. You should circle this in your Bible. You should get out a pen right now and circle this because this is the very first time that grace appears in the scriptures. The very first time in one of the darkest moments in the Bible where sin is abounding, as Paul said, we see grace abounding even more. God is willing to save one man and his family and he's willing to make a way so this one man who calls on him will be saved from judgment. You know, just as I said, one day soon, Jesus will come, and we will all stand before him. But you don't have to come under judgment when Jesus comes back. No matter how terrible your sin is, no matter what you've done, you know, you can come back to Jesus, and you can call on him, and he will forgive you if you're willing to admit that you're a sinner, and you're willing to turn to him for forgiveness and grace, because God is still gracious, and he made a way at great cost to himself to provide salvation for us. You know, if you think about it for a second, just let's just think about this for a second. If you were to commit four sins a day, four sins a day, you'd be doing pretty good. But let's say you're a pretty good person. So you only can commit four sins a day. How many sins is that a, a, a year? Like four sins a day. Steve, you've worked that out. I think it's like... Just over 100,000 years. If you live for 70 years, over 100,000 sins. And God has recorded all of those sins because God sees it all. And he's a holy God, which means he can't have fellowship with people who are sinners. And so this is what stands between you and God. All of the sins that you have committed that he has recorded. But it's amazing. God took all of that sin and he laid it on his son, Jesus. And Jesus suffered the punishment for that sin on the cross. He suffered the full punishment for that sin, and he died in our place, and he rose victorious, proving that he was God's son. So that if you turn to him today, admit that you're a sinner, and you turn to him for grace, you can be forgiven, and you can be restored to a relationship with God. God doesn't want anyone to perish. 
He didn't create people to perish. He didn't create people to live lives like that. He created people to live lives under his authority. He created them to live in his presence forever. So I want to urge you today. Have you found grace in the eyes of God? Have you come back to the Lord, repented of your sin, and turned to him? If you haven't, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. You're only a prayer away, a prayer away from actually having your whole life and destiny changed. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now. If you feel that God is working in your heart and he's leading you to that place where you admit that you're a sinner and you call and humble yourself before God and ask God to forgive you on the basis of what his son has done for you. The the prayer will appear on the screen above and I want you to pray this prayer with me. And along with me, let me, let me pray the prayer. Every head bowed. Come on, let's bow. This is you here today. And you can sneak a look up at the screen if you want to look at the prayer. Here's the prayer. Dear God, I admit that I've sinned. I've thought things, said things, and done things that do not please you. I realize that my sins cause me to be under a death sentence. I have also come to know that you sent Jesus, your only son, to pay the price for my sins by dying in my place on the cross. Jesus, I thank you for you giving your life for me. I celebrate that you rose from the dead in victory over sin. I need your forgiveness. Enter my life and become my leader, my Lord, from this moment on. Thank you for all that you've done and will do in my life. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the very first time this morning, we have this thing that we would love to give you called I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. It's a pack that has a number of things in it that will help give you some more information about the decision that you've made today. And at the end of today's service, I would invite you to go up to our newcomers lounge and speak to Jonathan and Natalie, and they would give this to you. But but for the rest of us who actually may already be Christians, we can easily write off this passage and see no application for us in this passage. So I want everyone to get out their phone. You got a phone here this morning? All right, get out your phone. Hopefully it should be turned off or on silent. I want you to open up the notepad on your phone and I want you to write this question down. This is a question I think the Lord wants you to think about this morning. What area in my life am I compromising today? What area in my life am I compromising before God today? You see, for us as believers, we, str- we struggle with the same spiral downward. Sin begins with compromise. Compromise will lead to corruption. Corruption will lead not to condemnation. If you're a believer, there is no condemnation. You are God's child. You're in Christ Jesus. But you may experience the discipline of your father to bring you back into intimate relationship with himself. And you see, you see, brothers and sisters, Romans 12 verse 1 says this of all of us. Listen to me, please. Romans 12 verse 1 says this, 
I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's great mercy, we've just talked about the great grace that we can have, and hopefully you've all experienced it. In view of God's mercy, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And then verse 2 says what? Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now, the interesting thing that the, the word world there actually in Greek, Greek is aeon. It actually should be translated, do not conform to the pattern of this age. Jesus said, before I return, it will be like the days of Noah. And believe me, I think that we are getting closer to that time. As we look out in our culture, we are seeing some things that are exactly like what was happening in those days where people are self-centered. Every intention of their heart is towards themselves. Violence is on the, on the increase. We see that in our world. But God says to us, I don't want you to be conformed to the pattern of that age, but I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I want to ask you here today, what area in your life have you started down the road of compromise? Just imagine this for a second. Look up here. Imagine you start at this point and you have two lines that go out. You know, they go out on angles like that. Right at the very beginning, the lines are very close together, aren't they? And you don't even realize that they're parting. But as you go down further down the track, they separate, 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 separate. And what can happen in our lives as Christians is we can make these small compromises where we start to live according to the pattern of this age. And before long, we are far away from God. We are walking in darkness continually. Our hearts don't burn with a passion for Christ. We've become lukewarm. And Jesus isn't our first love. And I want to call to you today as your pastor, because I love you, because I love you, I want to call to you today and say, what area of compromise is God speaking to you about? So guard your integrity. Put that right. Confess that before him. Don't carry last week into this next week. But today, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Is it unforgiveness in your heart? Do you have unforgiveness towards someone? And you've allowed that to be fostered in your heart. What is it? What is it in your life, this small area of compromise? And you're allowing it to be fostered and it is just growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. Because sin begins with compromise. It leads to corruption. It will end with God lovingly disciplining you. He's your father. You're his child. And he disciplines us in love to bring us back. But it is not pleasurable to be under the discipline of God. Like, Just read the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And anywhere along that, anywhere along that spectrum, you can come back if you humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I need your grace. I want those strongholds broken in my life. I want to humble myself. I don't want to walk in darkness any longer. I want to walk in the light. Because that I want, to, I want to live out my identity as a child of God. That's how I want to live. Noah, what an example. It says in the very next verse that Noah, there was no one like Noah in his generation. He was blameless and righteous. That's what I want our church to be. These shining lights of people who walk with God, who appropriate God's word, 
who live as living sacrifices and are renewed by their minds and walk with him. So I want to urge you this morning, maybe today is a day where you need to make this place in front here an altar before the Lord and you need to come down, kneel before him, put things right and come back to him. He, he wants you to because he loves you. He loves you.